uh, James 2, starting at verse 14, if you'll let me swing your Bible and you can dive right into that for your Bibles and turn there. It's in the ESV translation. It says this, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warm without giving them the things needed for the body, will be ineffective. So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, very well. Do you believe in him yourself? If you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works. And faith was completed by his works. The scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. He was justified by faith. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messenger and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works had a profound effect on the way that he viewed his faith, both 
James does not say, what good is it if someone has faith and not works? at here, do you have a faith that passes the buck, is kind of another way that James is, is asking this question. Or, do you see the ways that God has chosen to use your faith to extend his mercy, extend his compassion, extend his love to the world around you? Do you, do you, do you think about how God really, you know, you think sometimes he really ought to do such and such for so and so. If God was good, he'd really take care of this, and he'd do this, and this, and this, and this, and this. And then how often do we think, okay, how is God perhaps calling me in a given situation to actually act on this? And we often have this faith that passes the buck. To God, no less. May God warm you. May God fill you. And so he's he's trying to draw attention to the absolute just absurdity of this. Like, you can't do that and say that you have faith and say that it's real. Uh, James concludes his point by saying, So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. It's dead. It's lifeless. It has nothing. It has no life in it whatsoever. He says in in verse 26 that this faith is like a corpse. Body without a spirit. So it's it's important because this is not a contrast between faith and works. Okay? Not a contrast between these two things. It's between something real and something false. Faith and faith. Not just between faith and works, which is how we often understand this. You know, and, and James anticipates that some people, you know what, they will think that this is, a, this is just a give and take. They will just think of this as a contrast between faith and works. So he says in verse 18, okay, but someone will say, all right, you have faith, and I just, I just happen to have works. That's just how we're made. That's what our gifting is. They're just different approaches, different styles to living the, the same Christian life. And again, it's a bit more that kind of spiritual passing the buck sort of language there. And we have tons of ways that we express this in our own language. All the time, you know, we, we say, I'm just not wired that way. That's just not who I am. And sometimes that might be a legitimate thing, but sometimes it's because we just don't want to do the thing that we know we should do. I'm just, I'm just not wired that way. That's not my gifting. And so James says, okay, Let's, let's talk about that. If, if that's what you're thinking, let's talk about that. So you say that doing good works just isn't you. That's not who you are. And he says, okay, let's, let's go all in here and let's have a little bit of a showdown. You show me your faith apart from works, and then out of my works, I'm going to show you faith. And let's see how that plays out. Let's see what happens with that. And recognize this. James doesn't for a second think that this person has anything to show. He doesn't for a second think that there's actually a contest here. You know, because we can read this and we can think, okay, one is kind of better than the other, right? You show me your faith, 
And you probably can do it. Show me your faith apart from works, and then I'll come along, and I'll show you my faith out of my works. And that one's a little stronger and more robust. And it's better. You know, and that's the one that's really going to win the showdown. But that's not it at all. At all. James isn't saying, okay, you know what? You lay your pair of twos on the table, and I'm just going to lay my royal flush down, and that's it, and I'm going to walk away with everything. James is saying, you don't even have cards to show. You're not even playing the same game. You're not even sitting at the same table. You're off somewhere else doing something else entirely. Nothing to show for it. That's the implication here. Go ahead, show me your faith apart from works, but hold on, wait. What, what are you going to show exactly? Your pious language? Your well wishes? That's the point of what he said earlier. Just, you know, your your blessings that you say on people, is that what you're going to show? Because what good is that? What does that accomplish? So not two types of valid faith, but fake versus genuine. That's the contrast here. So James is already, he's he's bringing a little sharp attitude to what he's saying here. Like, he really is. He's being kind of, you know, snarky about this. He's saying, let's have a duel. I know you don't even have a gun, but let's, let's do it. Let's see what happens here. So he's being a little bit snarky about this, and then it gets really attitude, just chilling in verse 19 here when he says this. He says, you believe that God is one, good for you. Gold star, good job. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. That's from Deuteronomy 6. That's the, that's the famous Shema, the, the daily prayer of the people of Israel. The confession that the Lord God Almighty is one. and He's the true living God. And it's a very important prayer. And that's what he's basing this on. And he's saying, you pray this, good job. That's wonderful. Really great. But you should know that every demon of hell believes it too. There are no atheists in hell. Not at all. There are no atheists in hell. The devil himself, the devil himself could stand in a church service, recite the Apostles' Creed, and not have any problem with it. Not be lying at all. It would terrify him. But he would have no problem with it, and he could do it. The angels of hell could recite this Shema and believe every word. That's what he's saying. And it's, and it's, not, it's not intellectual belief that matters here. And in fact, I just want to take this a step further, it's not even a response to that belief that matters here. You know, and, and this was kind of new to me when I was looking at this, because this is a passage that people love to quote to say, see, look, it's not all about intellectual. It's not all about theology. The demons have good theology too. It's about like a, res- it's a, it's a response. It's actually living it out. It's doing that, which is a fair point. That's a fair point. Except James says that the demons do respond. They do respond to their faith. They respond with trembling. They do something. They believe this stuff. They do something about it. They tremble in fear. So James is, is, is killing two birds with one stone here because he's saying, all right, the demons have a faith that's theologically correct and they have an emotional response to it. They have it both. And they're still demons. Their faith is still demonic and insufficient. And I, I think that perhaps why James is bringing this up is because he knows that a lot of us fall on either side of the split. We sometimes approach faith with with a bit of an intellectualism, you know, where we say, okay, as long as I have my basic beliefs in order, my dogma and my doctrine in order, then I'm good. And for some of us, it's not that, but it's an emotionalism on the other side. You know, as long as I respond to things with a certain emotion that I've experienced before, 
I have, I have a certain sense in a time of worship. If, as long as I have that, then I'm okay. I'm emotionally responsive to the things of God. And James says, you do well. That's fine. Good. And he's being a little sarcastic there, but not entirely, because of course that's good. You do well. Nothing necessarily wrong with that, but that better not be all there is to it. That sort of faith doesn't save you. Remember, that's the, that's the question at the very start of this passage. Can such a faith save him? That's the question. Moving on to verse 19. James says, you want to know, foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? And, and this, this word useless here that he's saying, it's a bit of a pun in the language. And so he's saying, you want to know, frivolous person, that faith apart from works doesn't work? Faith apart from works is workless? Trying to make the point really clear. And then James goes on to give this difficult, incredible, fascinating, terrifying example from the life of Abraham. Now, if you're not, you're not familiar with Abraham, this is the man uh, back in Genesis 12 that God calls. God calls Abraham, gives him a promise. I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth through you, Abraham. I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth through you. Look up to the skies, count the stars, number them. That's going to be your offspring throughout the ages. I'm going to give you a people, and you're going to be my people. Very, very important point in biblical history. Only one problem, Abraham says, I'm an old man. My wife and I aren't able to have children. So this is a, this is a promise that he's hearing, and it's a difficult promise to hear and to believe. It's very difficult for him to believe this. So fast forward a few decades. Abraham is 100. He's 100 years old. And then the God who is only ever faithful to his promise, follows through on his promise, gives Abraham and his wife a son, Isaac. Now there's some other stuff that happens before that, but this is Abraham and his wife have this son, Isaac, and this is the promised heir. Later still, God asks Abraham to sacrifice his son, Isaac, as an offering to God. And this is, this is an excruciating scenario, without a doubt. Not, not just because of the horror of having to do something like this, which is absolutely horrific, no, no question about it, but also because of the horror of being in a situation where it seems like God is going to renege on his promise. He promised this. Now what's he doing now? Is he being faithless? Is he backing out? But Abraham knows that God isn't going to renege on his promise. Hebrews 11, Hebrews 11 tells us that Abraham had faith that God would raise Isaac from the dead if he had to, if that's what it took. And ultimately, we learn that God never intended to let any harm happen to Isaac at all. Never intended for that to happen. But all along, it was a test of Abraham's faith, a test that Abraham passed. Costly faith. It's a faith that works, a faith that does something, a faith that's living. And then James says, okay, think of this. Was it not out of these works of offering up his son Isaac, was it not out of this work that Abraham was justified? That he was shown to be in right standing with God? That's what the word there means. And then, and here, this is, this is where the classic debate comes in, okay? This is where James gets really tricky for people who sometimes want to really hold on tight to, to Protestant teaching and doctrine. This is partly why 
Luther called this an epistle of straw, which is where we get the title for our series. This is where the, the debate comes in a little bit. Because we Christians, we love to talk about, as we should, we love to talk about, we are not justified by our works. We are not justified by our works. We are justified by faith. If you look in uh, Romans 3.28, is the classic text. Paul says, we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. That's what we hold. That's what we believe. So, justified by faith or justified by works? Paul is saying this. James is saying this. Which, which is it? We talked a few weeks ago about how, first of all, first of all, you're not justified by either. You're justified by Jesus. But what is the means that Jesus is going to use to justify us, to, to declare us in right standing with God? What is the means? Which one? Faith or works? And I hope that this is clear to us after walking through this and after going through James so far. Because if we've been listening to James closely and we're asking this question, which is it, James? Faith or works? We should hear James's voice resonating in our heads saying, wrong question, you idiot. Wrong question. That's not the question to be asking. It's not or. It's not faith or works. That's not the point. And he's trying to make this clear. You can't be saved by workless faith. That's what he's saying here. You can't be saved by workless faith in Jesus. Why? Because that's not real faith. That's faith. That's not anything real. That's not anything living. Faith does something. Faith leads you into costly obedience. That's why he brings up Abraham. It leads you into costly obedience like Abraham, like Rahab, who risked her own neck out of obedience for the Lord. That's James's point. Real faith is going to lead into that. And Paul, for his part, Paul doesn't contradict this at all. He doesn't contradict this at all. He just takes a different angle. He approaches it from a different side. So you have James over here saying, you are not saved by workless faith in Jesus. Know that. And then you have Paul over here saying, okay, hold on. Don't for a second think that you're saved by faithless work either. You're not saved by that either. Not for a second. That's what the first uh, few chapters of Romans are all about. What Paul is hammering home. Don't for a second think that only the really bad sinners over here need Jesus, need the cross, need faith, but you'll just get along fine on your good works because you're a decent enough person. No, there's not one righteous. There's not one good. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So both faithless works, just earning it by good deeds, and workless faith, just believing the right stuff, both of these don't cut it. Both of these don't cut it. The reformer, uh, John Calvin, he might have put it best, and and really, remember this, write it down, think about this, because I think this is just the best way to phrase it. He might have put it best when he said this, we are indeed justified by faith alone, but the faith that justifies is never alone. The faith that justifies is never alone. It always produces fruit. It's always doing something. It's always stepping out in obedience. Doesn't mean you're saved by that obedience, but they're connected. They work together. And that's exactly what James is saying in verse 24. He's saying a naked faith isn't going to do it. It's never alone. It's never completely on its own. It always has an effect, always produces fruit. And look at how James expresses this in verse 22. After he talks about Abraham, he says, You see that faith was active along with his works. And faith was completed by his works. 
The word that uh, James uses to say active along with, it's this word synergeo. It's, it's, we get the word synergy from it. We get this. So synergistically this was happening. They work together to produce this result. Faith works alongside works, James says. And faith was completed by his works. It was brought to maturity. It was brought to fullness. It was brought to its intended goal. Now, this, this is a very central part of this passage here. This is kind of, there's a linchpin verse here because it gets to the heart of the difference between what James is saying and what Paul is saying. Because if you read Romans, we, we already talked about some of the tricky stuff here, but here's the other tricky part. is If you read Romans, Paul also uses Abraham as an example. He references the same guy to make a completely different point. So you're just like, what's going on here? So you look at this, and, and in the book of Romans, uh, chapter 4, verse 3, Paul says, Abraham had faith in God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, as justification. So ha- he had faith in God about what? Abraham had faith in God about what? That he existed? That he was one? That he was powerful? About what? It's not that. It's, it's Paul quoting a verse from Genesis 15 right after God tells Abraham, hey, I'm going to make you a great nation. You look at the stars, that's going to be your descendants. It's right after that that it says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. He believed the promise that God had given him. He believed that despite all external appearances, God would be utterly faithful to his word. That's what Abraham believed. Not just that God was there, not just that he existed. But even this faith, even this faith that Abraham had, wasn't mature until he acted upon it. And that's James's point. It wasn't mature yet. And when James references Abraham's story, he doesn't talk about this earlier scene where Abraham believed God's promise. He talks about 25 years later when God called Abraham to test how much he believed this promise. He's referencing two different scenes in this man's life. Faith was strengthened, matured, and brought to its full state by this work, by this testing that God gave to Abraham. James wraps up his passage by way of a really sharp analogy. Uh, and this, this little summary here is James's conclusive answer to the question of verse 14, that, that question of, can such faith save him? That question gets answered here at the very end. He says, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. That's your answer. Just as full human personhood requires body and spirit, so also saving faith requires an expression in works, in action. So when you take a step back and you kind of sum up what James is is warning us of in this passage, because it is a very cautionary sort of vibe that he's putting out here. When you think about what he's warning us in this passage, part of his point is that some Christian confessions of faith are as far from saving faith as a corpse is from a real person. A real, full, embodied human person. That's as far off as it is. It's a very dramatic point that he's making there. He's, and he's, he's giving this as a warning to Christian churches. Not just, hey, this is what some other people are doing. He's saying, make sure this isn't you. Make sure you're aware of this and that this isn't seeping into your life and into your heart and into your actions. Wrapping up then, just something to keep in mind as we try to hear God's word in all of this. 
This is something that I just, I felt very, uh, you know, you, you want to make, you don't want to emphasize some of the stuff that James is so, saying so much to the point that you're kind of missing out on other things. So just to keep in mind, when we're talking about the different, the different way that James deals with faith and works in this passage, here's, here's what I don't want us to hear. Here's what I don't want us to hear. I don't want us to hear, okay, so it's the cross, it's grace, it's faith that gets us in. You know, that's kind of Paul in Romans. It gets us in. And then once we're in, it's our works and our behavior that really prove that we're in right standing with God. That are kind of the basis of his love for us. And that's, and, you know, and we can say, okay, well, that's what James is saying. It's not that at all. And that's far, far too common of a way that we think about this. And it's super dangerous. It's incredibly poisonous, and it's incredibly damaging to our faith when we think of it this way. And this is why it's dangerous, just for a couple of reasons. First of all, it's unlivable. It's unlivable to actually approach it that way. One, one person that I read this week talking about this passage, he said that, that this sort of attitude, it was a part of the Christian circles that he'd been a part of, and it ended up feeling, for him it ended up feeling like Christianity was sort of like a free trial membership at a really ritzy country club. The first year is wonderful, and then after that you pay through the nose. He said that was genuinely his experience about it. We, you know, we're going to talk about grace and faith, and it's so wonderful, but you know what? Then in comes James to just lay the hammer down. That's not what he's saying. You get, in, you, know, you get in by this free gift of grace, and then you pull yourself up by your own bootstraps to stay in. It's always mercy. It's always grace from beginning to end. Uh, second reason why this sort of thinking is incredibly dangerous is because it makes a mockery of the cross of Jesus Christ. An absolute mockery of it. It says, okay, Jesus, you know what? I appreciate your work on the cross. I'll sing about it. I'll look to it. I'll, I'll, be, I'll be very happy. I appreciate your work on the cross. But now that I'm a bit more mature, I've been doing this for a while, I think I got it from here. You know, and of course, when you phrase it like that, it just sounds like a ridiculous thing to say, but effectively, we do that a lot. You know, the baby Christians over here are dealing with this, and I'm kind of onto bigger and better and more important things. I've outgrown a bit of the gospel. I've outgrown a bit of the cross. James would never, ever have time for that. Again, James is not trying to get people to somehow earn their salvation as, as though they could. He would think that's a ridiculous thing to think that they even could. He's concerned about people making claims to faith and not even having the most basic of works to show for it. Because think for a second, what sort of works is James concerned about here? What sort of works? He's talking about compassion, kindness, mercy, and love. And who's the one who looks compassionate, merciful, and loving? The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's how God revealed himself to Moses. That's who looks that way. James is addressing people who think that the cross frees them from needing to look like God, when in reality it's the cross that frees us to look like God. And that's a beautiful freedom to have. That's, that's not a freedom with a catch. That's a beautiful freedom to have. It's the amazing work of the cross that allows us 
to get over ourselves. The amazing work of the cross that allows us to let go of our pasts, let go of our weaknesses, let go of our insufficiencies, so that we can get on with the business of reflecting God's character and mercy into the world around us. And that's such a beautiful thing. With no fear. To get on with doing that with no fear, with no anxiety about not doing it well enough. Because we never will. With no pressure that we aren't good enough for God. Because God knows that we're not. But Jesus qualifies us. It's such a freeing, beautiful point. James is not, this whole book, everything that we're looking at, James is not about the cross being less than we thought it was, but more. Far more. The pressure's off. The pressure's off through the cross. God has adopted you. He's given you the righteousness of his son. You have that. That's there. He loves you, and you're free to joyfully freely reflect his character into the world. So I'm going to call up the worship team now, and we're going to sing this song partly with the the lyrics in it that Bonhoeffer wrote, just praising the work of the cross and what that means. And I just ask that we can have our hearts open to understanding what James has to speak to us through this, that it's not about somehow earning things, it's not about trying to pull ourselves up by our own efforts, It's about recognizing that this faith that justifies us is never alone, and because of the cross, we can go forth in freedom, living the way God would have us live. Let's just pray together quickly. God, we thank you for your word. Uh, We thank you for the ways that you challenge us, challenge me, certainly throughout this past week, the ways that you convict us. God, I do ask that you can give us soft hearts to hear you, it's very easy to hear, especially things like this, where they kind of confront our own uh, weaknesses. It's very easy to harden our hearts against you and against the things that you want to say to us. And I just ask that we can hear you, we can praise you for what you've accomplished through your Son, and that we can be eager to get on with the business of maturing in our faith, just like how this text talks about faith being brought to maturity and to completion. Help us to be people who want that, for ourselves and are eager for that. Thank you for your love and your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.